Welcome to the Tobin School Podcast. This is Mr. Gordon. The conversation you're about to hear with Ms. Gaffney occurred on Tuesday, Election Day, which I make mention of at one point during our conversation. Uh, I'm recording right now on Thursday, November 5th, two days later. Currently at 9.37 a.m. on Thursday, no winner has been declared in the presidential election as mail-in votes are still being counted in key battleground states, despite Trump's efforts to suppress these votes. And it could be days before we know. Now, um, I've thought a lot about what I wanted to say in regards to the election in our country right now. And I wasn't sure if I should say much at all, if anything. This is not a political podcast. And as a public school teacher, it is not my job to endorse political candidates or political parties or persuade students. It's my job to teach students how to think critically and arrive at their own conclusions. However, all votes have been cast and I am not in the classroom right now. So I'm taking off my teacher hat and just talking as Michael Gordon, the person. I've been experiencing lots of emotions over the last few days, as I'm sure you have too. But I'd like to share what I'm feeling and thinking because maybe it resonates with you or maybe it's helpful to you in some way, or maybe it provides a sense of community and solidarity at a difficult time. Uh, At the very least, it helps me to talk about it. So thank you for listening. Um, I apologize if it sounds like I'm reading at times, um, but it's because I am reading. Um, It was really therapeutic for me to just sit down and write and help me to organize my thoughts and emotions. What I'm struggling with most is what this election, regardless of who wins the presidency, says about America. I, along with many other Americans, was hoping that this election would be a repudiation of a man who not only refuses to speak out against racism and hate and division, but openly encourages it. A man who time and time again lies to the citizens he is supposed to protect, a man who repeatedly puts his own ego above the best interests of the country, a man who chooses to divide instead of unite. This is not a leader. I was hoping that this election would show overwhelming rejection of this despicable excuse for a human being and everything he stands for. Sadly, that is not what happened, and this is painful for many of us. Despite what the polls predicted and what the media predicted, the race is tight, um, with nearly every battleground state looking much tighter than the polls had prepared us for. What's clear is that the media and Twitter don't understand America. Even if Biden ends up winning, winning, um, the election results suggest enthusiastic, durable support for Trump from big swaths of the country. Trump's appeal was broader than believed. Now, this does not come as a surprise to people of color who have encountered various forms of racism throughout their lives. It's not surprising to them that racism exists in America and systemic oppression exists in America and racism is not a thing of the past, not something that was eradicated by the civil rights movement and desegregation and electing the first black president. Just look at our nation's history. And I don't just mean slavery, I mean our recent history and our current events. And for those who were hoping that this election would be a resounding rejection of Trump and what he stands for, we should not be surprised that that did not happen. And if you were surprised, well, welcome to America. Wake up from your dream. I read a quote that I want to share. The extent to which you are in shock over the US election is the extent to which your privilege is showing. We often get stuck in echo chambers, only interacting with people who have similar beliefs and views as we do, especially on social media. We interact with a minuscule piece of the American puzzle and assume that's how most people feel. And as despicable as you may find Trump, the sad reality is that he is merely a visible symptom of the racism that is woven into the fabric of this country. Regardless of who wins the presidency, the election results shine a light on the unyielding racial injustices in this country and America's commitment to the idea of whiteness and white supremacy. It is not lost on me that I am a white man who has benefited from white privilege and male privilege in my life, the double whammy of privilege. 
and as closely divided as this election was, that close divide only exists among white people. Every other racial demographic is in clear opposition to Trump. So I am not here to burden our black and brown folks with my disappointment. You already know that systemic racist oppression isn't going to end tomorrow because you've seen firsthand how deeply ingrained it is in our country. But I am here to challenge the white listeners out there. Voice your disappointment to other white people. Challenge them to do better. Have hard conversations with them. We need to do better. But I am not hopeless. Hope is a word I've been thinking a lot about lately. Yesterday, Mr. Zimmerman, our middle school civics teacher, said something that stuck with me and that Mr. Toledano, our school leader, repeated. Hope is a discipline. It's something that one must work hard at to cultivate and maintain. Because there will be many times when our hope is challenged or accosted like it is right now. Imagine the hope that slaves must have held tight to endure their horrors. Or the hope that ancestors of our black and brown children must have harbored to keep moving forward toward a freedom that was nowhere in sight. We may feel disappointed and depressed and discouraged, but we cannot afford to lose hope. It is the only path forward. Progress does not come easily. Be hopeful that Americans voted in record numbers despite a pandemic. Be hopeful that Missouri elected the first black Congresswoman, Cori Bush. Be hopeful that more Native Americans were elected to Congress than ever before. Be hopeful that Delaware elected the US's first transgender state Senator, Sarah McBride. Be hopeful that the first openly LGBTQ black man, Mondaire Jones, and openly LGBTQ Afro-Latinx man, Richie Torres, were elected to Congress. Be hopeful. To the students and families in our Tobin community, although millions of Americans through their votes have sent a message that they don't value you, that they don't care about you, that they don't love you, please know that I, that all of us at the Tobin love you and value you and see you, regardless of your skin color, or where your family is from, or what you believe, or who you love. One last thing before you hear, Ms. Gaffney. I want to share with you something that Mr. Toledano, our principal and leader, has shared with our teachers, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing it with you. He says that part of his worldview is that everything is war, and in war there is hate and aggression. But in this war, we can fight on the side of love. We can fight by educating our students, we can fight by empowering our young people and by cultivating a discipline of hope in them, by ensuring that their hope endures. These are acts of war on the side of love. What will be your act of war on the side of love today? I apologize for the lengthy intro. Thank you for listening. I love you all. Now for some lighter fare, here's Miss Gaffney. Hi, Caitlin. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I'll start the same way I start every interview on this podcast. We all have unique paths that led us to the Tobin. Where does your story start and how did it lead you to the Tobin? Okay. Well, I have been at the Tobin for 21 years now, which seems incredible even to say it aloud. Um, I was an undergraduate at Northeastern University and I finished uh, three months early and I had the option to do another uh, co-op or seek a, a job for myself. I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I knew I wanted to be a teacher in Boston Public Schools. I called Human Resources um, at Court Street at that time and said, do you have any openings? And they told me to go see Janet Short at the Tobin School, that there was a long-term sub position so I came for an interview and Ms. Short hired me on the spot to cover a fourth grade of 29 students for a uh, maternity leave for a teacher. And uh, I started, I think the very next day. And it is true what they say that no matter what you learn in your teacher prep programs, it's not enough to prepare you for the realities of the classroom. So I quickly learned that there was so much more that I needed. And 
it was the veteran teachers that worked around me that helped me get my feet, get um, a grasp on what is required as far as the day-to-day -day responsibilities of a teacher and to learn about how to make connections with students and establish a safe classroom learning environment. So I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Ms. Short, who was the school leader at that time, who really was a salt of the earth person and had built quite a reputation for herself in that way in Boston Public Schools, and to all of the you know veterans that were at the Tobin at that time. It's funny, last episode of the podcast, I talked about how I ended up at the Tobin and how um, I wouldn't have survived like that first year without my mentors. And I mentioned you um, because you're actually the reason I, I'm, I'm at the Tobin. You were my professor at Northeastern and um, you were teaching at the Tobin during the day. And I took two of your courses and, you know, we had a, a good relationship and you, you set up a, an interview with our principal at the time, Ms. Harris, and got my foot in the door. And I started as a long-term sub just as you did um and it's funny similar paths but i, I really credit you and mary alice uh, miss sandy who was um next door to me my first year teaching and who i just leaned on so much and um you're absolutely right like nothing prepares you for that first year when it's just you in the classroom with the students and um yeah we, we remember those mentors that got us through the beginning for sure it's so uh, true it's it's really it's something that I think is particularly special about the Tobin because we have such a community and climate that when folks are onboarding, I feel like people go out of their way to try to connect with that person and support that person. And we have so many different uh, connections and relationships with staff at the Tobin um, that I think we've helped to foster that sustainability in the profession that is uh, not necessarily the case in all school settings. Mm -hmm. I and, agree. You know, maybe I really have an inside track there at Northeastern, Michael, where I just keep mining for gems and then you know, <laughs> bring them right over to the Tobin. But, um, like a pipeline. It never takes to get some, some great teachers. We've, we've had a lot of connections with Northeastern and some other colleges over the years that have allowed us to, to really um, you know, bring in some fantastic staff members that care so deeply about the students and the mm -hmm. families. Are you still teaching in Northeastern at night? I do. I do still do that part-time. Um, I have maintained my um, community building course and I passed, when I stopped teaching math as a Boston Public Schools teacher and shifted to science, I passed that course off to a colleague in the union um, who is still a math teacher uh, because I felt it important that the students at Northeastern were getting somebody who was still uh, in practice with that content area. Mm. And um, are you like, how is it? I mean, I know how difficult it is just to be teaching during the day um, at the Tobin. How are you able to balance teaching all day at the Tobin with teaching at Northeastern at night and then coming home to family responsibilities? You have two daughters. Um, how do you balance that all and has it gotten easier over the years? Well, I would credit that to having a wonderful partner. You know, my husband, John, and I, we've been together since I was 19 mm. and um, I'm 43 now and we got married when I was 24. So we have basically, you know, grown up together and have established a mutual respect in our marriage and as parents where we make sure that the family always comes first, our daughters, Maeve and Bridget, always come first. And then whatever else professionally, we have to make sure that we support each other through that. So I think it's, it's our uh, collaboration. And then for my own self personally, it's picking things that I'm passionate about. You have to only do things when you're, you're still feeling passionate about them because then there's a joy in that. There is an unlimited joy in being a teacher at the Tobin. There's an unlimited joy in developing new teachers to be great urban educators. But if I felt that that passion, you know, was, if I felt that that passion was uh, diminishing in any way, I, I would leave that part of my professional life behind. Mm -hmm. And your joy that you have with the parents is very apparent um, sorry, the, the joy that you have with the students at the Tobin is very apparent. Um, just, I can see it in your interactions with them every day. So um, 
and yeah, it's, it's important to know when that, if, if and when that is starting to, to waver a little bit. There is like a, an inherent enthusiasm for life, like a zest for life and living and, and, you know, just grasping each day as a fresh start that children come into school with. And I, I find that just so invigorating. And uh, the interactions that you have with students every day, their sense of humor, the way they view the world, um, you know, the, the things that they say in um, such wise ways uh, without some of the jaded uh, or uh, other, you know, life taxing responsibilities <laughs> that adults have, the pure way that they can view situations and, and things and the love that they have for learning fuels me to continue to want to learn along with them and to keep coming back for, for that energy boost. I just, I can't say enough how, um, one thing I look forward to is honestly like the hallway in the mornings when you see students coming around with that backpack on and that look in their eyes like they're, you know, just itching to get to class. That to me is just so gratifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, you, you mentioned your, your first year at the Tobin 21 years ago. Um, have you been there at, there longer than anybody? Not to, not to date you, but um, you, are you the, the longest tenured Tobin teacher? At this point, Ms. Barry and Mrs. Scotto have been, uh, Mrs. Alonso have been at the uh, school. Ms. Verdue has been at the school longer than I have. Okay. I'd say Stay Forge, Ms. Sandy and I came in all right about the same time. I'm sure, you know, in those 21 years, you've seen many educators, administrators, students come through the Tobin, uh, not to mention the revolving door of superintendents we've had in Boston. Um, when I first came to the Tobin, I remember we were teetering right on the verge of becoming a turnaround school, um, which Ms. Akamu talked about last uh, on, on the episode she was on the podcast with me. So you've been here at the Tobin through all these shifts. Um, and changes in leadership and, and, and everything else. What has been the biggest change or changes from when you first came to the Tobin and what the Tobin is today? Well, I would say that societal changes, uh, you know, political influenced structures that have been put into place have changed uh, some of the freedoms that teachers have to be who they want to be in the classroom as far as content and delivery. Um, so I'm, I'm speaking to some of the standardized tests, some of the pressures that have been placed on teachers. Um, I think you, you, know, you know this about me, but my heavy involvement in the teachers union, one of the reasons or the prongs of that is to sort of push back on some of the uh, systems that we have in place that do nothing more than to foster these sort of, um, you know, racist ideas about urban education, about certain schools, when they really do um, nothing more than indicate what schools need more supports um, in place, more wraparound services. And we've never done a great job in Boston of providing schools with um, wraparound services. And we've not done a great job in Boston in acknowledging the significant inequities that exist within our own system. Um, so I am, I am uh, excited that of all of the uh, horrific things that our country has experienced of late, one of the things that's coming out of that, I feel like, is a more general awareness in the public of what some of those inequities are that our students face um, daily and what our collective responsibility is, say as a city, as a state, as a community to address those inequities. If we, if we truly do believe that we want all students to have um, you know, equal opportunity and access to a quality education in Boston and Massachusetts, um, then we have a responsibility to act on that. Are you feeling hopeful that educational policy will change to address those things? I think that if we all do our part, um, then yes, absolutely. I think 
another thing that we're all, you know, becoming acutely aware of is that it's, it's not enough to just think it or feel it, that there's some action required in that, that we have to step up, step in, be willing to be part of that uh, change agency that we so desire to see. Mm -hmm. And to be transparent with our audience, Caitlin and I are talking right now on election day. So <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of these sort of uh, societal issues are on our mind and weighing heavily on us. So if we seem a little distracted or anxious or emotional, um, that's, that's what's going on right now. So just a just well to be, said, just, Michael. Just well to be. It's a good thing people can't see us, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why we do audio only, Caitlin, on this podcast. <laughs> very good, very yeah. Um, so you sent in a question last week for me, um, asking me my big biggest success in my career and my biggest challenge in my career. And Caitlin, it was such a great question that I'm going to throw it right back to you. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> well, let's see. My biggest success in my career has been. Um, sustaining in the teaching profession while also hopefully encouraging and supporting other teachers along the way. Um, that's on a collegial level. On a uh, student teacher level and a family uh, teacher level, I hope that I have always treated everybody with respect and kindness and that I have helped to uh, spark an interest or a love of uh, whatever content area I was teaching at the time, Michael, there's been different responsibilities over the year, but take science for now. I, I feel like I have such a gift uh, to have that assignment at the Tobin because it has allowed uh, me to learn more as a teacher, continue to develop myself and learn new things, new content, new techniques, and to experience the joy of discovery and inquiry in science with students. So I hope that that will uh, continue them and their curiosity as they age up and continue them to want to explore the field of science, which, you know, if I'm looking back on my own education, I don't think that that was necessarily something that was heavily emphasized or um, necessarily encouraged. Um, but I think that that is something that I, I hope uh, students leave the classroom with. And as far as the families go, um, I think, yes, uh, being a parent gives you a, a different insight into what that responsibility is like and that um, care and love that you feel for other human beings. And I've always tried to uh, be respectful of that with our families and to be extremely grateful for everything that they are juggling in their life, working, uh, familiar responsibilities with their own children, with their own parents, and still our families always do their very best to support our students in every uh, way, shape, and form. Yes, they do. We have a, we have a special community at the Tobin. Um, I know you come from a, a family of educators. Your sister Bridget is a teacher in Lawrence Public Schools. Is that correct? Yes. So I thought, um, which I just find interesting that you and your sister are both teachers because in my family, my, my two brothers and I are in such different careers, all three of us. Um, so was there like an earlier generation of teachers in your family, which then like made you and Bridget want to become teachers? That's a great question. Um, let me answer the second part of the last one because I, I talked about the successes, but I don't think I told you about the challenges. We'll feed it to the next one, Michael. I was trying to let, let you off the hook there, Caitlin. Yeah, I appreciate that. But yeah. if, I'm, if I'm being transparent, I think you are, if you are dedicated to being um, a, a, a long, lifelong teacher, then you need to be dedicated to being a lifelong learner. So there's never a time at which you can, um, you know, rest on your heels and say, oh, I got this, you know, every day I leave the classroom like, oh, I wish I had done that or maybe I could have done that better. And um, so I think that what your biggest challenge is, is that daily battle with yourself of that went well, but I need to do that better. So that's like a constant growth process. And then, um, you know, the, the biggest challenge I think is that 
you know, thinking about students that I've met over the 21 years that uh, keep you awake at night, right? So there's some students that uh, are not with us anymore. Um, those are the ones I, you know, think about before I, I go to sleep every night. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some students that I, I worry about. And so I think that has, has been one of the challenges, Support, like separating your uh, professional um, and your personal attachment, you know, the worry and the love and the care that you feel for students. I think it's um, difficult to shut that off. Um, and then again, like I said, the ones who, you know, aren't with us anymore, that, that keeps me awake at night. Mm -hmm. And we, we've, um, talked, we've and talked a little bit, oh, sorry, Caitlin. No, uh, go ahead. We've talked a little bit about that. I think, um, you know, just thinking about those students that are not with us anymore. And, and as teachers, who, who, you know, when we've spent time with these students and their, their lives went, you know, um, maybe it took an unfortunate turn. And we think, you know, what in our time with those students, could we have done something differently um, that would have ended up in a, in, a different, in a different path or a different result? So, um, yeah. You know, these it's very painful, you know, Michael, I don't speak about it hardly ever, you know, but I feel like this podcast, you know, is an opportunity for people to be a little bit more open and, and be a little bit more honest. So it's not something I really, you know, talk about outside of my house, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it is, it's a reality. It's a, it's a minuscule part of our job, but the impact of that part is exponential because you're talking about human life and people's lives and um you know what may have been what could have been and and you know the role that we all you know played in that and i think that's something that uh you know that's something you carry with you in your heart every day yeah well, i i appreciate you opening up about that now to get on to your next question michael yes. uh, my aunt uh was a teacher um, in Lawrence for more than 50 years. Uh, she was a nun. She taught at a parochial school, St. Patrick's in Lawrence. And uh, my earliest memories are going into her classroom and her best friend, whose sister Ellen, who I call Auntie Ellen. So going into her uh, middle school classroom and Auntie Ellen's kindergarten classroom and just seeing the whole classroom set up and the work that they did, I knew from a very early age that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I learned a great deal over the years just by watching my aunt, how, how professional she was, how seriously she took her work, how she put her work off times in, in front of even, uh, you know, family time hanging out. And, you know, she'd say, no, I have four sets of papers I have to grade. I can't come over and watch the game or whatever it would be. Um, so I, I really had great admiration for her work ethic and the amount of lives that she was able uh, to touch. She passed away last December after a, a significant um, relapse and battle with cancer. Um, I'm sorry so, to hear that. Oh, thank you, Michael. That that was excruciating, um, you know, for the family and and. Uh, but listening to what people had to say about her as a teacher and how she affected their lives that was just so um, meaningful. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the m young men that she taught when he was younger came up and, and said to the family, you know, nobody loved me more than this woman. Mm. That, that gripped me, you know, because you, you don't realize the impact that you have on people's lives sometimes until, you know, much further down the road, if ever you know the impact that you have on their lives. And that's important for us to keep in our mind, you know, for two reasons. Yes, you can be such a positive light, but that power also comes with great responsibility that you have to make sure that you're adding value to that child's life and helping them to succeed and reach their fullest potential. So she is an inspiration that I carry with me. My sister went to... Um, St. Michael's up in Vermont and played basketball up there on scholarship and uh, studied elementary education. And she's been a teacher in Lawrence. She's actually a teacher of the year in Lawrence public schools. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that was a, a great uh, accomplishment for her. And she's been teaching uh, elementary for years in Lawrence now and just absolutely loves the work that she does and my mother was a paraprofessional in Lawrence for years with a uh, very small elementary um, um, preschool age students mm. 
and um, my mother is, I'd say, you know, my classroom management style is a combination of, you know, my drill sergeant, literally he was a drill sergeant in the army <laughs> father, and then my mother who grew up in Somerville and Cambridge. So I have like aspects of both of their personalities in, in my classroom management. And then listening to some of the stories that my mother would tell about her interactions with students and how she handled certain situations. You know, I, I learned a lot from that too. So I think I've incorporated pieces of, of a lot of my family members into, um, you know, the work that I do every day. So that, I think education's always been a conversation at the table in my house. And um, it just felt like uh, something I've, I've always been attracted to and wanted to do and, and have never looked back at that decision or thought about doing anything else. Mm, it's a true calling for you, it seems like, you know, and I think that's apparent to everybody who's, who's been in your classroom. Um, yeah. does, does Bridget have like a, a teacher of the year trophy or like a ch championship belt, like a wrestler that she, or like a crown that she, <laughs> that she wears apple. the holidays? It's an apple, um, and we call her Toddy, which is short for Teacher of the Year. Um, so Toddy, Toddy, uh, she likes to party. We like to say that to her a lot. Um, so we good naturedly rib her about it, but she's um, she's she's a hot ticket. So she yes, <laughs> yeah. Sen sense of humor in the Gaffney family is uh, is 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 rich and deep. So that's up there. Yeah, that's um, can. You, you mentioned a little bit earlier that um, your role with the Boston Teachers Union. Could you just talk for a few minutes about that, um, why you decided to get involved? And because um, I know you have some, some family history in, with, with unions as well, right? Sure, yeah. My mother, you know, in being part of the Lawrence um, Public Schools, was a member of the Lawrence Teachers Union. And, um, you know, my husband, John, is also in one of the labor unions, Local 4. Um, and with my sister now being in the Lawrence Teachers Union and myself being in Boston Teachers Union for so long, uh, that uh, aspect of, of labor is really important to our family. And uh, I, I've shared this story a few times, but my father's father was born in 1898 in um, North Andover, Mass. And when he was 12, his father passed away. So then as the eldest child, he had to go to work in the Lawrence Mills uh, six days a week, 12 hour days at the age of 12. So he wasn't able to finish his education. And I mean, just he was one of the most interesting, fascinating people. Um, his ability to fix anything, to uh, just design solutions for, uh, you know, repairing things for turning upcycling. He was upcycling before that was hipster cool, Michael. So, <laughs> you know, he was like the original upcycler. Um, so, you know, just not being wasteful, uh, reading every day, um, just so many lessons that, that he taught the family. And that's without his opportunity to have the access to education that, that we've had. Um, so in hearing his stories and what that was like to be a child mill worker at that time, you know, just has always um, just hit home for me the importance of having strong labor unions that protect workers' rights and uh, ensure that there's a safe learning environment for our students as well. And I think that's never been more prevalent than it is in our current um, pandemic situation. But I think it's really shed light on some of the things that teachers have been advocating for for so many years. Um, in Boston, I think this is uh, particularly unique because of the age of our facilities and the lack of repairs and updates that our students have had to endure in the school buildings that, that they attend. Mm. So that has always um, been a part of why, uh, you know, I was a member, uh, an active member of the union. It was the veteran teachers that welcomed me in. There was a woman named Socio Perez Castillo that uh, was a teacher at the Tobin uh, some years ago. Her and I became friendly. She was a huge, um, hugely active union member and encouraged me to run for building rep at the Tobin, which wasn't something that, you know, I, I was necessarily thinking about for right then and there. But she said to me, you know, why wait? Why wait? Do it. Go for it. 
Um, so I did, and that's how I, I started out as a building rep at the Tobin. Um, Zochil, again, she was uh, someone that was very special to me. She, a, a few years later, was um, killed in a car accident in Mexico with her mother. Ugh. So uh, she's somebody else, you know, I, I keep in my heart that's influenced uh, my path as an educator, and I keep her picture up in my closet. Um, and, you know, I think about her now and again, and uh, how she taught me that it's, there's always room for you to make sure that you are advocating for what you think is best for the students and also um, to encourage the teachers to have a voice as well. You and have, I think you know, Michael, I, I've really taken that message to heart. Yes, I would, I would agree. <laughs> you, you have fought extremely hard for um, our students and families and teachers. Um, over the years, but especially throughout this um, pandemic. So on behalf of all of, uh, all of our students and our staff, we are, are deeply, deeply grateful to you, Caitlin, for that. Thank you, Michael. It's been a true team effort. And I think, you know, again, what we're saying that there's, the Tobin has this very special uh, feel as a community. Some things can be taught and other things just seem to magically be. And I think the Tobin's a combination of, of both of those things. We reach out, we connect with one another, but there's also this, um, you know, unspoken belief, I think, that when uh, people are asked to step up, we always do that for one another. And I think that's been evident in, in recent months as well. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, to move on to a lighter topic, uh, when Miss Akamu was on the podcast, she and I talked about um, guilty pleasure TV or what we call trashy TV. Um, so she, she had, I think she mentioned the bachelorette she's into. Um, and she said, I wish I knew who I could talk to about this stuff, about trashy TV. And I was like, <laughs> Gaffney, <laughs> like, Gaffney, call her now. Okay, um, okay. So, so you, you and I, Caitlin, always talk TV. So anytime like I'm looking for a new show, I go to you and Amanda, uh, Miss Harvey. So, um, and it's not always trashy TV. It's, you know, prestige TV also. You've turned me on, on to some really good shows over the years. What shows are you into right now, trashy or otherwise? Okay. So I do um, indulge in some guilty uh, pleasure TV watching because I, uh, I feel like it's a nice way to unwind or detach sometimes when you're feeling a little bit uh, overstressed. Um, I have a, a hidden gem for you that's on Netflix. It's a documentary about um, an octopus and a scientist uh, filmographer that kind of um, dives uh, under the sea to spend the day with, or a portion of a day with an octopus every day for like a year. So um, mm. if you haven't seen that one yet, I, I believe it's called My Friend the Octopus. I'll, I'll have to double check that title for you, Michael, but that is something that I watched recently and I greatly enjoyed. So I'll have I, the... Uh... I'll have the editing team get on that to make sure that's the right title. So. <laughs> Thank you. I am a fan of the documentary. So mm. I, I frequently watch documentaries. I like, um, um, I'm like, I like a good masterpiece theater. You know, I just finished a four part masterpiece theater. So I'm a big fan of channel two. So I watch a lot of, of PBS TV as well. And then I do like my Bravo TV. Um, so I, I found of late, though, I have a little less patience for that type of um, TV viewing. So I, I've been trying to, um, you know, limit that, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Mm -hmm. All right. My friend, the octopus, I wrote it down. You've, uh, you, you're batting like a, a thousand with me on TV recommendations. So I'm going <laughs> to check that one out. Um, I know you turned me on to Peaky Blinders, which I love. Love that show, too. Yes. Great one. Um, all right, Kaylin. Well, I know um, we have been talking for a while. I know you have um, your two daughters to, to get back to and um, probably a lot of um, CNN watching tonight. So yes, it's going to be a late night tonight, Michael, but yes, it will. Uh, it'll, it'll be worth it. I think we've um, had opportunity to have some really important conversations with our students, just their awareness of the whole election process and uh, 
you know, their involvement and their voice and opinion, I think has been really um, interesting and helpful to hear over recent weeks. Um, so if anything, I think everybody's really paying attention now, which I think is, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you, Caitlin, for, for being so generous with your time and just with um, opening up about, you know, some, some difficult things to talk about. But um, I, I'm, I'm very grateful and I know our, our audience is also. So appreciate you taking the time, Michael. This is awesome. Thanks for doing this. This is a wonderful uh, treat for all the Tobin community and beyond to uh, learn more about one another. So thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. We're All lucky right. to have you, Michael. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, I'll talk to you soon, Caitlin. Thanks. Take All care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. It's mailbag time, the part of the podcast when I answer listener questions. Today's first question comes from our wonderful third grade teacher, Miss Scott. Hi, Mr. Gordon. It's Miss Scott. I have two questions for you. My first question is, what was your favorite holiday as a child and why was it your favorite? My second question is, what is your favorite holiday today and why is that your favorite holiday? Talk to you soon. Thank you for the question, Miss Scott. Um, this is a fun one for me. My favorite holiday as a child was Thanksgiving. Every year we'd go to my father's cousin's house and all my cousins would be there, my aunts, uncles, grandparents. Um, so it was a big crowd and I had two, have two older cousins, John and Andrew, who are about 10 years older than I am. So as a young boy, I thought they were just the coolest. And we'd throw the football around the backyard, my cousins and my brothers, we'd eat of course. And we'd all cram into their little den and watch football all day. Uh, we'd be hanging like on the arms of the couches and squeezing two of us into chairs, lying on the floor. Uh, it didn't matter because we were all together and that, that's what it was about. And every year without fail, my grandpa Nat would pass out on the couch watching football um, after eating, which as a kid, I always thought was hilarious because he'd snore. But now I might be known to do the same thing on Thanksgiving, so I'm, I'm not laughing anymore. As an adult, uh, the question is a bit more difficult to answer. So it's a close call for me between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm Jewish, which means I didn't have Christmas as a kid. And I was always really envious of my Christian friends who did have Christmas. But my wife grew up with Christmas, so when we got married, I also married into her family's Christmas traditions. So it's a big gain for me. Um, and she's not just Christian, she's Italian. And Italians do Christmas, like it's no joke, it's the best. Um, and as a father now, it's also, you know, I love seeing my kids get excited about Christmas and Santa and all that excitement that I didn't have as a kid. So the holiday takes on a different meaning for me now. Uh, I still love Thanksgiving though. When I got older and my older cousins started having their own families, and doing their holidays together, my mom started hosting Thanksgiving, which I love. Um, mom, if you're listening, it's still one of my favorite holidays. Um, but now I think much more about the meaning of the holiday. I have plenty to be thankful for. Uh, we all do. Sure, there are people out there with more money or material things than I have, and there will always be someone with more things than you. But if we have family, uh, people who love us, then we have lots to be thankful for. Looking out my window right now, I'm thankful for the crisp fall air, um, the majestic colors of the autumn leaves, the sound of the wind rustling the leaves, the bluebird I can hear. These things um, don't belong to anyone. They belong to all of us, and we can all be thankful for them. And that's the beauty of the holiday. We all have something to be thankful for. The next question comes from one of our wonderful Tobin parents, Miss Santana. What are the best resources that can help families during the pandemic? Thank you for that question, Miss Santana. The pandemic is impacting us all in one way or another. So um, I'm going to share the resources that I have found 
Um, hopefully they can be of use to you if you need them. All the information I'm going to share came from the City of Boston website, which is www.boston.gov, and from the Boston Public Schools website, which is www.bostonpublicschools.org. So uh, I encourage you to go on those websites yourself and uh, explore more. There are plenty of resources on there for you all. Um, so just a few kind of highlights that I found. If you need food, you can call the Mayor's Office of Food Access at 617-635-3717. Uh, the city is also in partnership with a lot of community organizations. One is Project Bread Food Source, uh, and their hotline is 800-645-8333. They have information on food pantries and community meal programs. Uh, Boston Public Schools is providing free breakfast and lunch to all Boston children, even as schools remain closed. There are super sites that are open Mondays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., providing uh, school meals to students, five-day breakfast and lunch packs, which includes five breakfast and lunches for remote learners while that's going on. Um, again, on the BPS website, there is a list of all the super sites uh, broken down by neighborhood. If you need medical care, the mayor's health line is 617-534-5050. Healthcare options are available for everyone in Massachusetts, regardless of immigration status. If you need childcare, the mayor's office of women's advancement is 617-635-3138. If you don't have a place to stay tonight, dealing with homelessness, or you're looking for affordable housing options, the uh, Massachusetts Department of Housing and Community Development Emergency Housing Assistance Line is 866-584-0653. Uh, so those are just a few of the resources I found. Again, all that is coming from the City of Boston's website, www boston.gov and from the Boston Public Schools website which is www.bostonpublicschools.org. I encourage you to go on there um, if you need help with technology or reliable internet or Chromebooks for your students out there that are uh, learning remotely please contact uh, the Tobin School. You could reach out to Mr. Toledano or Ms. Akamu, and they will get you whatever you need. Uh, thank you for that question, Ms. Santana. Our last question comes from our wonderful ESL teacher slash reading interventionist, Ms. Medeiros. What was your favorite book as a child and why? Thank you for the question, Ms. Medeiros. I love this question. As a child, my favorite book was *The Giving Tree* by Shel Silverstein, and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get deep with it. So there's your warning. Um, for those unfamiliar with the book, it's about a boy and a tree who love each other. As the boy grows older, he no longer wants to spend his days climbing the tree and swinging from her branches. He wants other things in life. Um, and the tree, out of her love for the boy, and as the title suggests, gives everything she has to make the boy happy. For example, um, when the boy wants to make money, she offers her apples so he can sell them in the city. When the boy uh, gets older, becomes a man, and wants to build a house, she gives him her limbs and branches to build it. So I think as a boy, I, I knew there was something beautiful about this message, about giving of oneself to those you love. I've also just always loved Shel Silverstein's illustrations. Um, they're simple, they have no color, they almost look like a child could have drawn them, but uh, he illustrates in such a unique style. Uh, it's unmistakably his, and, and I've always loved, loved his illustrations. Uh, the beauty of this story and many stories is that my perspective has changed at different times of my life. So I, I loved the story as a kid. I loved how the tree always accepted the boy back with open arms. It was about forgiveness and enduring love. As an adult, I remember like when I read this book to my first graders, I decided that it was a sad book. I thought the boy was selfish and I wanted the tree to stand up for herself 
when the boy continued to take advantage of her. Um, I remember having a deep discussion about this book with another teacher debating whether it was a happy story or a sad story. Uh, now, I recently read this book to my son. We actually have two copies, the one I had as a child and one that my son was given as a gift. And after reading it, I, I said to my wife, you know, I feel for the boy. Um, there are very subtle hints that maybe life hasn't been so kind to him and he's gone through some tough times. And I didn't pick up on these subtleties when I was younger reading this book, but I did this time. And I think the tree can see that. And that's why she ultimately accepts him back, even after he's taken everything from her. She still loves him and still wants to do what she can to make him happy. Um, I think, yes, sure, he was selfish, but maybe some of his selfishness is excusable because life was unkind to him. I have empathy with the boy now. Um, and I'm back to thinking it's a beautiful story about forgiveness and sacrifice and enduring love. Um, so there, there are many books I've reread at different points of my life, and each time I have a different perspective and reaction. And someone else could have a completely different take on it, and neither is right or wrong, and, and that's the magic of books. So if you haven't read this book or haven't in a long time, you should, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, I could talk about this book all day, but um, thanks for the question, Ms. Materials. Welcome to the Beard Power Rankings, part of the podcast when I rank the beards at the Tobin School. Um, this week, let's get right to it. Uh, first, Mr. T. Second, Mr. Zimmerman for his uh, words of hope, which I mentioned earlier that transcends the beard. Number three, me. Last week um, in an eighth grade class, one of our eighth graders, Raquel, was like, Mr. Gordon, um, why is your beard so long now? You didn't have that last year. So I kind of have like a pandemic beard going on. Um, and I had, I guess it was trimmer last year. So I said, um, I don't know, I just decided to grow it. Why? She said, it looked nicer when it was trim. So I was like, oh man, that's gonna knock me down this week in the beard rankings. But then Linnea, another eighth grader, came to my defense and she said, I think it looks nice, Mr. Gordon. So Linnea, thank you. Um, and I don't care that I was Linnea's first grade teacher and maybe that's why she came to my defense, whatever. She came to my defense. So that kept me firmly in the three spot. Uh, number four, Mr. Patrick. Number five, Coach Sam. And number six, smooth as butter. Mr. Paremba. Thank you to my guest, Miss Gaffney, to Miss Scott, Miss Santana, and Miss Medeiros for your questions. One correction on today's episode: Miss Gaffney was talking about her uh, the show that she was into about the octopus. The correct title is My Octopus Teacher. It's on Netflix. If you want to check it out. I'm definitely going to. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening to an extra long episode. Uh, until next time, be safe, be kind, be you. I love you all.